All right, so Psalm 15. Um, now, listen, we did one, two, and three, and uh, I know we're skipping quite a few. We may come back. I don't know yet, um, but we may. Uh, but for now, we're going to keep going. Psalm 15. Um, who can dwell with God? Who can dwell with God? That is the title, the big idea. Trust in Jesus, who alone can bring us into God's presence. Trust in Jesus. Jesus, who alone can bring us into God's presence. So many years ago, I say many, this is probably, uh, we went three times. The first time was five years ago, five years ago. We went to Newport Beach. Newport Beach is an iconic beach uh, in southern Washington. It, it's different from the beaches that we see in Texas, uh, even Florida, it, but the water is cold. But the beaches are beautiful, and there's all types of shells. The kids loved it. And so one weekend, I think we left maybe on a Wednesday, and we came back Saturday. Um, I always want to be back for Sunday. I always want to come back, even if I wasn't preaching, just be with the body. And so we pull up to this beautiful house at Newport Beach. And here's the thing. You're going to think I'm crazy. We just walked in. I didn't pay to stay there. This wasn't like a, a VRBO. Um, <laughs> I didn't win it, so this wasn't something we won. We just walked in. We had access because of who we knew. I didn't break and enter. Um, but again, I, I didn't deserve to stay here. No money had been paid. We, we didn't win a weekend-long stay. The only thing that gave us access into this beautiful, gorgeous beach home was who we knew. The owners were members at our church in Washington, and they told us, Jeremy King, uh, he was a police officer, his, uh, his wife, a nurse, they have eight kids, five adopted, all five uh, special needs, severe special needs. One of the coolest families in the world, and so they said, man, we have this place for our family, we've had it for years, it's at your disposal, whenever you want to go, you can go. And so because of who we knew, we could go anytime, and we did, we, I think we went three times, and it was wonderful. The second time we went, we all got sick, so it was a lot of puking and the other, but... Uh, Still, I mean, it was, it was still good. There, there was some good stuff that happened. Um, who can dwell with God? That is the most fundamental human question. Who can dwell with God? Well, it matters who you know. Amen? It matters who you know. And if you don't know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, can you dwell with God? The answer is no. Who wants to enter God's kingdom? Who wants to be a, a part of God's forever kingdom? It matters who you know, right? Because we knew the kings, we had access to their place, this beautiful beachfront property, and if you know Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you will dwell with God for how long? Forever. Forever. Well, let's read our passage. This is a rather short psalm, really just five verses. Verse five is pretty long, so there's the A, B, and C. But starting in verse one, Psalm 15, it begins with a question. O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? This is an example of what type of parallelism? Those two questions are basically asking the same thing. So this is synonymous, right? So synonymous parallel. So, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Here's the answer that the Lord gives. He who walks blamelessly and does what is right and speaks truth in his heart who does not slander with his tongue and does no evil to his neighbor, nor take up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised, but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt 
and does not change, who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. And here's the promise at the end. He who does these things shall never, never be moved. All right, let me put this on. I usually just turn my phone off, but do not disturb. Don't disturb me. As you read this psalm, who's familiar with Psalm 15? Some of you? As you read this psalm, or as you just heard it read, I hope and pray that it caused great humility. When you read this psalm, there should be this deep feeling of disqualification, right? I I mean, can any of us say that we do verses 2, 3, 4, and 5 100% of the time, 24-7? Honestly, if we're going to be honest, we would say, no, brother, none of us do, right? So, but as Christians, we, we long for this as believers. We, we strive for this, namely, to walk blamelessly, amen, to do what is right, to speak the truth, but we cannot, we cannot do this perfectly. However, one has, and he did that in our place as our representative, and that one is, that's Jesus, Right. You can guess maybe what type of psalm this is. Um, psalm 24, Psalm 1, Psalm 119. This is a wisdom psalm. So we've already talked about one wisdom psalm, and that was Psalm 1. Some of the common features of a wisdom psalm found in Psalm 15 are this question and answer dialogue. A question is posed, and then the answer is provided. That's verse 1 along with the concluding promise at the end in verse 5, which we'll come to at the end. We see this same pattern in the longest psalm in the Psalter, which is Psalm 119. For example, verse 9, How can a young man keep his way pure by guarding it or keeping it according to your word? The wisdom psalm, and there's several of these, there's many of these in the Psalter, but the wisdom psalm is intended to confront the reader with how many ways? How many ways are there in life? There's just two ways, right? There's, there's the way with God as king, and there's the way with us as king. And one way is foolishness, and one way is wisdom. And we need to be able to tell the difference, amen? Here's the structure. Very simple. I, I put this in your handout. Verse 1 is the question by the psalmist. Verses 2 to 5b, so the majority of verse 5 the Lord answers. Here's the answer to the question. And then the very last part, the very last line is the Lord promises. So question by David, the Lord answers, the Lord promises. That's our psalm. (laughs) Now, this question and answer structure found in our psalm, this was common in the ancient world. The worshiper would oftentimes come to the priest and he would say, what must I do to dwell with the Lord? That was an important question. What do I need to do? How do I prepare myself to be in God's presence? That is what worshipers ask of the priest. Okay, so what's, what, what might you expect? Well, I mean, you know, you've got to sacrifice the right way. Um, you have to abstain from this. You've got to do A, B, and C. Don't do D. That's not good. That's not what we see here. The answer that the, the Lord provides is it's significant but even surprising. And what is the answer? One brother, this is Derek Kidner, he writes, 
But while the unexpected answer might have been a list of ritual requirements, and that's what we would expect, a list of things you got to do. These are ritual requirements. Here, strikingly, he says, the Lord's reply searches the conscience. The Lord is more concerned with the heart of the worshiper, as seen in his answer in verses 2 through 5, right? He's cons- the Lord sees the heart. He's concerned with the heart and what springs forth from the the heart. So the focus is on the worshiper's character. It's on his character. All right, so this psalm, Psalm 15, addresses four points, four points for us to consider and contemplate. It points to four things. Here they are in order. Number one, Psalm 15 points to our purpose. I mean, what is our purpose? (laughs) Is that an important question? I mean, shouldn't we know why we're here Shouldn't we know, shouldn't we desire to know the purpose of this life? Well, we find that in Psalm 15. So number one, it points to our purpose. Number two, it points to God's holiness, which we're going to find is an impediment to our purpose being fulfilled. Okay, because, uh, spoiler alert, our purpose is to be with God. Our purpose is God made us to dwell with him as seen in the garden. But that purpose has been foiled because of what? Sin. Okay, so points to our purpose. Number two points to God's holiness. Three, it points to our greatest need. Four, it points to the solution. So we have what? Our purpose, God's holiness. Number three, what? Say it again. Our greatest need. And then finally, thankfully, the the solution. All right, so what stands out in verse one points to our purpose. Here's our purpose. Verse one, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? Again, this is the most fundamental question that humanity can possibly ask, namely, who can abide with the Almighty? Who can dwell with the Lord? That's a huge question, right? Who can be with God? The verbs to sojourn and to dwell denote communion. So if you're taking notes, you can put sojourn, dwell, equal communion. These are relational verbs, right? To sojourn and to dwell denotes relationship, communion. Whereas the language of tent, and what's the other one? Holy hill denote context for worship, tent being the tabernacle, right? The holy hill, the place of the temple, okay? So think communion and places of worship. In sum, here's the question, who can have worshipful communion with God? That is the question being asked. Who can have worshipful communion with God? Who can dwell in the Lord's presence? The the verb to sojourn is interesting. It gives, it elicits the image of a pilgrim traveling to Mount Zion, the temple for one of the great festivals, Passover, uh, first fruits or booths. During this time of traveling to gather with God's people for worship, it was a time of great introspection, a time of preparation for the worshiper as he prepared to enter into the Lord's sanctuary. We know that mankind was made to dwell with who? Again, the God of the deists, right? And so some of our founding fathers uh, had this wacky belief, it's called deism, that God, and this is a very sophomoric definition, but I I think it'll make the point. The deists believe that God created, yes, but he's not personal. He's not imminent. He's only transcendent, so he created everything, And then he said, deuces, peace out, enjoy life. I'm not concerned with you. I'm not interested in a relationship. 
I've created, now just get on with it, I'm out of here. And again, that's maybe too simplistic, but you understand, is that what the Bible teaches? That God just created us and then said, okay, good luck, have fun. I'm not, no, God is personal. He speaks, he reveals himself, he desires to be known, to make himself known. He made us to dwell with him, amen? And that should humble us, that should encourage us. We can't forget that. So we see this back in Genesis 1. This is what the Lord has been pursuing since the beginning of creation. And this is the story of salvation history from Genesis to Revelation, the great links that God goes to to win his people back so that we can be with him for how long? Forever. And I, could tra- I love biblical theology. I can trace this thing quickly from Genesis, you could say from creation to the new creation. Okay, So again, God makes Adam and Eve in his image, and then he places them in a garden, but he's there. He's with them, right? There's a relationship there. He, he talks with them. They talk to him. Well, what happens? We know the story. Genesis 3, the fall, they are they're kicked out of the garden because why? They disobeyed. They rebel against the king, against the creator. Is God done dwelling with his people? Of course not, because we have the exodus. And what do we see in the Exodus? The pillar of cloud, right? The pillar of fire, the burning bush, the tabernacle. God desires to be present with his people. He shows up. Theophany, God visibly manifests himself, his presence before his people. He doesn't just save them, but he saves them to be with him. Case in point, the promised land. Amen? What made the promised land so wonderful? It wasn't just, hey, a land flowing with milk and honey. It's, I'm going to be with you. At one point, God threatens to remove his presence, and Moses is like, oh my goodness, Lord, if you do that, we're done. There's no point, right? What made the promised land so wonderful? The promise of God's what? Presence. It's everything. His presence is everything. And then we think about the incarnation. We think about John 1.14. The word became flesh, in the Greek there, literally tabernacled among us. Jesus came to be with us. I love the passage, I think it's in Mark 3, where Jesus is establishing the 12 disciples. And it says, he appointed the 12 so that he might be with them. He wants to be with us, amen? How do we know that? What is the proof, the evidence that God desires to be with us? The cross of Christ. He sent his son to die so that sinners like us could be brought back into fellowship, reconciled to a holy God. We don't deserve it, but that's God's plan, his desire for his glory and our good. And how does the story of salvation end? Thankfully, we know the end of the story. If you read Revelation 21, 1 to 4, there's the promise, yes, no more sickness, no more disease, and we look forward to that, but what makes the new heaven and the new earth so glorious? What is the promise? I'll be with my people, and my people will be with me. So does God desire to be with his people If you carefully read Revelation, it's not Revelations, but Revelation, the language that John uses, inspired by the Spirit, it's a return to the garden. What was lost is going to be restored. Amen? God with his people in glory and perfect fellowship. All right, let's move on. So, let me see if I can move past this. Um, Do we all agree that God desires to be with his people? Okay, but what happened to prevent that? Sin, we... (laughs) We rioted, we rebelled, we said, we don't want you, God. And because of that, there was separation, a chasm. And if you read the major prophets, and even the minor ones, there's this diagnosis. 
why can't we be with God? Because we are sinners. We're stiff-necked and we have hard hearts. So we need forgiveness in a we need a new heart. Okay? We need a new, we need the gospel. So this is the solution that God's word is pointing to, the saving solution to finally realize God's purpose to be with his people. And again, we, we know the end of the story. And, and in a sense, it's realized now because we have what? I did miss one thing in that survey. I went from uh, the garden to the new creation, but I missed Pentecost because we get the what? We get the Holy Spirit living inside of us, God with us now. Amen? A deposit guaranteeing, Paul says in Ephesians 1, 13 and 14, the glory that is to be ours. So, would you guys agree that, who has unsafe friends? Who's talked to unbelievers? Who's ever asked unbelievers big worldview questions? Right, like, what is the purpose of life? Why are we here? Do you, do you agree that mankind you know, friends, family that don't know Jesus, and even us as Christians, we long for fulfillment, right? We, we long for satisfaction. We long for joy. Agreed? So I, I would argue that, and, and I'm not saying that mankind longs for God. They don't. They suppress God. They suppress the truth. Paul, Romans 1 and 2. I get that. But mankind does long for fulfillment. They long for the satisfaction that only who can bring? Only God can bring, right? It's, it's how a husband or wife might feel after being separated from their spouse for a long time. Something's missing, right? When I've gone on long mission trips away from Haley and the kids, I'm, I miss them. I long to be with them. Something's not right. And I think humanity, because, again, I forgot who said this, but we'll never know joy until we know Christ, right? And I think that's true of humanity. People desire fulfillment, joy, satisfaction, but they'll never know it until they know who? Jesus Christ, all right? Because of sin, and I know this is true, Cody, it's true for you, it's true for me, Justin, all of us were born outside of the garden. I mean, I, Michael, were you born in the Garden of Eden? I was not either, brother, so man, we're, we're you know, we, we have common ground, we are what? Our place of birth is proof that we are what? We're sinners, right? We're sinners, uh, we are born separated from the true source of life, peace, and satisfaction, therefore, Again, there is this drive within humanity to fill the void. And yet, as Paul says, sin blinds us. Sin blinds humanity to the true and lasting solution, which is, or who is? Jesus Christ. Because of sin, humanity tends to look, always, I wouldn't say tends to, because that denotes, you know, partially, but always looks for satisfaction in the wrong places. So, what does the Lord's answer to David's question in verse 1 teach us? Number one, this passage points to our purpose, which is to dwell with God. But the problem is we can't dwell with God because we're what? We're sinners, but that's only half the story. Not only are we sinners, but God is what? Why can't we? So what? We're sinners. So what? God's bigger than our sin, but there's a problem. God can't dwell with sinners. Why? Because he's what? He's holy. So number two, it points to God's holiness. <laughs> so here's the, here's the answer to that most fundamental question. Who can dwell with God? He who walks blamelessly and does what is right. I hope you're already convicted because none of us, we've already failed the test, okay? Speaks truth in his heart. Well, yeah, sometimes, but all the time? Who does not slander with his tongue. I, I've done that. Who does no evil to his neighbor, nor takes up a reproach against his friend, in whose eyes a vile person is despised but who honors those who fear the Lord, who swears to his own hurt and does not change. They're faithful. 
who does not put out his money at interest and does not take a bribe against the innocent. What can we assume from the Lord's answer to verse 1? Not just anyone can dwell with God. Why? Because God is what? God is holy. Therefore, the character described in verses 2 to 5b and required of the worshiper of the Lord reflects the character of who? I mean, whose character is described here? This is, this is God. God is blameless. God does what is right. God does what is just. God speaks truth. God does no evil. He is faithful always to keep his promises. So in order to abide, in order to dwell, in order to be with God, we must reflect his character. And the truth is, we don't. We don't. Naturally, normally, inherently. Genesis one twenty six reminds us that we were made for this very purpose, right? To be made in the image of God means that we were made to reflect his what? His character in the context of relationship. Mankind, all of us, rejects and ruins. We ruin the relationship that we were made for because of what? Our rebellion, our sin. We are unholy. It's true. We are sinful. And what does our sin do? It separates us from God. So if the purpose is to be with God, God is holy. Our sin separates from holy God. That's a massive problem. That's a huge problem. There's a chasm, right? And this is most clearly demonstrated by Genesis 3 with the fall. Because Adam and Eve sin, they are immediately evicted. Who's ever been evicted? Don't raise your hand. But I mean, is that a fun thing? I mean, do you long for that day? You have security one day, and then the very next you're out on the street? I've known people like that. That is not fun, but that's what sin does, right? Because of sin, Adam and Eve were evicted. They were kicked out. No longer able to be in the presence of God because they and we are what? We're sinners, and God is what? He's holy. Listen, friends, and I know I'm talking to believers for the most part. I think, you know, I hope all of us here love Jesus, know Jesus, trust in Jesus. We know something has happened. We know that in Christ we have been reconciled to God. But without Christ, this is our, our plight. Amen? I mean, it's good to be reminded of the bad news, I, I think. Otherwise, we're going to stop walking in gratitude. It's good to be reminded of what we've been saved from. Amen? It's good to be reminded of what we deserve. Because then we're reminded of God's grace. We need a holy representative. We need someone to make us holy. That's, the, that's what we need. We're not holy. We are naughty is not even the right word. We're sinful. We're terrible, right? We're unholy. Who shall dwell with the Lord? Only the holy. Unfortunately, humanity is not holy by nature. So I, I, was a, I was a tennis player in high school. I wish, Mom, I would have started earlier. Uh, I had knee surgery. Soccer was my big sport. You know, I, I thought, I played in college, but I, I walked on. So I wasn't a superstar by any means. I just, I really enjoy the game. I really, I really enjoyed tennis. And, I, you know, and I, I did pretty well. I, I was okay. I mean, you know, Hudson at that time, tennis was fairly new. Um, but when I was in college, I went to SMU to watch a tennis match. This is Division One, And they're playing Oklahoma State University, right, the Cowboys. And I'm, and I'm right there just watching these guys 
hit the ball, and I'm like, oh, my goodness, like, that's tennis. Like, I was so humbled. Like, I thought I was a decent tennis player until I watched these Division I college players. And then a few years later, when I was going to school in Boston, my mom came up and we went to the U.S. Open, and we saw, I mean, again, we had great seats, Andre Agassi. This is before, you know, again, at this point, he didn't have hair, but remember that? So this is a crazy story. Give me 37 seconds. So it was the last match of the night. You guys remember Andre Agassi? Bald head, wild man, right? How many majors did he win, Mom? Like six, maybe seven? It was his, Okay, so we saw his last match, but here's the thing. It went until like one in the morning. He was playing this guy named Baghdadis. And John McEnroe, who's crazy, but he was comment, commentating, and he comes down the court, and he says, in all my years of tennis, this is the greatest match I've ever, it was like four hours long, and I was like, we were here! When you watch college players and the pros, the best, of the, we saw Rafael Nadal, we saw the Williams sisters play, and you're just like, oh my goodness. It's like when you go to a professional baseball game, right? You think you're good in baseball, and you watch these guys play, and you're like, I am so humbled right now. I, I see that I'm very limited. Do you see what I'm saying here? here? Here's the point I'm making, and I hope it makes sense. When we are confronted with excellence, it should humble us. We realize how far we have to go. Now, here's the thing, though. There are high school kids that if they work hard enough and if they have you know, enough athletic ability, they can get there one day. It's possible. The distance between a holy God and sinful humanity is infinite. We can never get there, okay? I was humbled when I saw these Division I players play. When I watched Agassi play, I was like, man, I thought I was good at tennis. I'm terrible, right? These guys are incredible. When we see God's holiness... And then when we see our sinfulness in light of God's holiness, it it does what to us? It undoes us. It humbles us. We realize he is infinitely holy, and we are what? We're sinners. We're hopeless. We're helpless. We need a holy representative. Amen? Amen. What do we learn? What else do we learn from Psalm 15? So, points to our purpose, points to God's holiness, okay? And again, God's holiness is an impediment to our purpose. Our purpose is to be with God. He's holy. Because we're sinners, we can't be with God. Ah! Number three, it points to our need. Our need. These verses condemn us, and they're meant to, right? They indict. I mean, just like Romans 2, Paul is indicting us, right? Jews and Gentiles alike are what? They're guilty. Do you guys agree with that? They bring, these verses bring our shortcomings and our guilt to light. We don't do the things laid out in verses 2 to 5 by nature. We don't live this way. None of us do. We rebel, we lie, we slander, we celebrate wickedness, we're dishonest, we're stingy, and we exploit the poor and the powerless. This is what sin does. We have failed in these areas, therefore we need what? We need forgiveness. And not only that, not only do we need forgiveness, but we need a new what? A new heart, new desires, and new power. We need to be made new. We hold these verses, verses 2 to 5, up before our face like a mirror, and we quickly realize, I hope, that we fall what? Incredibly short. So the last point. What hope does this psalm provide? Number four, it points to the solution. The solution. Now, as followers of Jesus, we know the answer to verse 1. Who can dwell with God? What allowed my wife and my kids and I to be in this incredible house on Newport Beach? It was who we knew. That was the only thing that gave us access. It was who we knew, right? We didn't deserve to be there. I didn't have a key to that place, okay? 
I didn't pay money to stay there. It was who I knew. Verse 1, O Lord, who shall sojourn in your tent? Who shall dwell on your holy hill? None but Jesus. True? None but Jesus. Why? Because none but Jesus has lived perfectly, has perfectly adhered to verses 2 to 5. The gospel, and we say this every Sunday, whether it's Aaron or me, we say this every Sunday, the gospel teaches us that Jesus lived the life that we should have lived but cannot live because of because of sin. Because of sin. He perfectly obeyed the law, and he alone paid our debt. Now, in order to understand, this is cool, and maybe you've thought of this before, there is a psalm that is very similar to Psalm 15. It asks the same questions. Psalm 24, okay? But there's a psalm before 15 and before 24 that points us to the solution. Can you guess the psalm? Dose, right? Psalm 2. We've already covered Psalm 2, so I hope this brings back to your remembrance what we talked about, what, three weeks ago? In order to understand and appreciate this psalm, we need to go back to Psalm 2, verse 6. Who can ascend the holy hill? Who can stand in God's presence? Psalm 2, 6. What does the Lord say? As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. Oh! Right? I mean, come on! Isn't that amazing? There is one that is worthy to be in the presence of the Lord. In fact, God has assigned him to that position, and it's Jesus. <laughs> in Psalm 2, which, again, we've already studied this together, the Lord's promise to the sinful problem, so his solution to our problem, is a king. It's a king, a king that will stand in the gap for humanity. Jesus is the king. He is the anointed one. He stands at the right hand of God as the vindicated and righteous son of God. And what's the good news? Now, again, maybe you're thinking, okay, well, so what? Jesus stands on the hill. He's in God's presence. I'm not. But aren't you? If you've trusted in him? Because if you're in Christ, you're a new what? You're a new creation. If you're in Christ by faith, what's true of the son is now true of those who belong to the son. Those who trust in Jesus are united to him and are thus granted access to God. I, I love, I use this when I share the gospel oftentimes. David, I mean, most people in East Texas know David and Goliath. Now, they probably don't point out the right things about that story, right? You can overcome the giants in your life. That's not really what we're talking about here, right? The king's victory. So when David won, who won? All of Israel won, Right? all those that David essentially represented. If Jesus is your king, then what is true of the king is now true for those who belong to the king, right? So, I mean, if you were part of Israel, when David won, Israel won, right? They defeated the Philistines. So that victory was shared by all those represented by David. Now, when Jesus won, and he did, when he stepped out of the tomb, if you've trusted in him, you've been united to him by faith, then his victory is now yours. What's true of him is now true of us, Amen. We know that with the cross, the veil was rent asunder. It's my favorite phrase in the world. I say that at least twice a day, rent asunder. No, I don't. <laughs> it was torn in two, right? It was torn in two. Now, what did that signify? It signified 
God's gracious provision of access to his presence through the finished work of his son, Jesus Christ. We who trust in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, now stand forgiven. We have right standing before God if we've trusted in Jesus, not because of our works, but because of his work. We have a new representative. Amen? If you know the king, then you have access to the kingdom. It matters who you know. It's true. Do you know Jesus? Do you know him? Now, here's where, you know, Paul, Paul does this especially in Romans. You know, he, he assumes, he's, he's very preemptive, Paul is in Romans. He assumes what, you know, some of his dialogue partners may ask, those who are opposed to him, like, you know, Romans 6.1, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? He assumes that people are going to take God's grace for granted and say, okay, so I can just trust in Jesus and I get a what? Go to heaven, free card, I can live how I want to live. No, Paul's saying, no, that's not what I'm saying. So the question is, if we trust in Jesus, can we just ignore verses 2 to 5? Can we just no longer, that doesn't matter, right? No, it does matter. We cannot throw this out the window because the gospel isn't just about forgiveness. It's about what? Transformation. The gospel, it provides, it promises both forgiveness, but also new power for holy living. Amen? We who trust in Christ are empowered by God's Spirit to live out. Verses 2 to 5. Now here's, you got to get this. Yes, we are empowered to live out. Verses 2 to 5. Not to gain right standing, no, but to demonstrate our gratitude for the right standing that's provided in Jesus. Amen? So we're not doing verses 2 to 5 to get right with God or to earn a place with God. Jesus did that for us. We do 2 to 5 by the power of the Spirit for the glory of God to demonstrate our gratitude to Christ for doing everything for us. Amen? (laughs) Why do you obey? Man, because I really want to earn favor with God. No. Why do we obey, church? Because we love the King. John 14, 15, if you love me, you'll what? Keep my commandments. Paul talks about this a lot, you know, I, I mean, not just Paul, Peter, 2 Corinthians 3.18, and we all with unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord are being what? We're being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another, for this comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit, the gospel, the good news in Christ, forgiveness in Christ, transformation, power to live differently. Ephesians 5, 1 and 2, if this weren't true, would Paul have said, Therefore, be imitators of of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Paul is not holding up impossible standards. He's saying these things with the transforming power of the gospel and the giving of the Spirit of God in mind. Let me summarize verses 2 to 5 quickly. What do we have in verse 2? What's being highlighted? His what? His behavior. He does what is right. You can write these down. I'll I'll go slow here. What's being highlighted, verses 2 to 5? His behavior. He does what's right. His speech, verse 3, he does not slander. His speech. Verse 4, his wisdom. He's discerning. He can discern between the righteous and the wicked. That's important, church. Amen? So, again, I'm just summarizing these verses. Verse 2, his behavior, he does what's right. 
Verse 3, his speech, he does not slander. Verse 4, his wisdom, he's discerning. In verse 5, his character, he has honest dealings with people. Now, here's what I want to ask. Where do you resemble Christ the most? I love 1 John 2, 6. If we claim to remain, to meno in him, to remain in him, to abide in him, we must walk in the same manner in which he walked. Okay, so as Christians, we're called to live like who? And we're not just called, but we're empowered to. And when you look at your life, again, are we saved by how we live? No, we're saved by what he did through his perfect life, death, and resurrection, our trust in him. But those who are saved, again, we say this a lot, I say this a lot, I'm, I'm quoting Luther here, we're saved by faith alone, but faith is never alone, right? It's always accompanied by works, okay? So that's really what we're seeing in verses 2 to 5. Now, verses 2 to 5 paints a picture of a perfectly righteous person. That should convict us because none of us have met that standard. But at the same time, as Christians, we realize, oh, someone has, Jesus. But we're still called to live like this, amen? And one day, we'll be like this perfectly. It's true? Morally perfect. Do you guys believe that? I hope so, right? That's not just pie in the sky wishful thinking. That's gospel truth. We're not glorified yet, but one day we will be. Amen? But until then, shouldn't we strive to live like this? So what's emphasized, what's brought to light his behavior? Verse 2, he does what's right. His speech, he does not slander. His wisdom, he's discerning. His character, he deals with people honestly. So the question is, where do you resemble Christ the most? Where do you resemble Christ the least? Where do you need to grow? Do you need to work on your speech? Your character? Your behavior? (laughs) Your discernment? Is there hope for believers? Amen. Behold and become. Behold who? Christ. Where? His word. Become more like who? Christ. Let's end with the promise. What does the Lord promise in verse 5c? He who does these things shall never be what? shall never be moved. (laughs) Anybody got their sea legs about them? Who spent time on the water? In a storm? What do you notice when you're on a ship in a storm? You're getting, what, tossed to and fro. You're holding on desperately, right? You're trying to gain your footing. Who enjoys that? None of us. What do we desire? Feet planted, secure, right? What's the promise here? He who does these things shall never be moved. What does that mean? What is the promise? I think we've got to read this with Psalm 1 in mind. To never be moved means what? This is judgment language. We're not going to be destroyed. We're not going to be cast off. We're going to be with the Lord forever. Now, how does all this work? As a wisdom psalm, Psalm 15 calls God's people to look to God's word where the path of wisdom, the path of life is laid out. So we must see all of God's word as a pointer to Christ. That is where the word leads. Where does the word lead us? It leads us to to Jesus. So this psalm points us to life, and life is found in who? It's found in Christ. The truly wise are those who listen to God's word, believe it, and do it. The word leads to Christ in faith in Christ. I think this is very similar. Um, I love Matthew. Again, we're going to do John after Exodus, but maybe one day, maybe in 2027, Lord willing, um, we'll do another gospel. Uh, Matthew will be a lot of fun. That'll be a sweet, a sweet time. 
But I'm reminded of Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. And this is the beautiful conclusion of this incredible sermon, Matthew 7, 24 and 25. He says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them is like the wise man who built his house on the, the rock. And, and how does he describe what's the situation? The, the wind blows and the rain falls. But what happens to the house? It stands because it's built upon the, the rock. And then he paints a different picture. He talks about the man who builds on sand. Same scenario. What happens? Wind blows, rain falls, crash! Because what was the foundation? It wasn't the rock, it was sand. And everyone knows you don't build on what, Clay? You don't build on sand. You want to build on a, a rock, right? And who's the rock? Christ. And what is the crash? What is that great storm? It is the final end-time wrath of God. Who wants to be held up for eternity? I do. Build on Jesus, trust in Jesus, and you'll never be moved. Amen? You'll be secure forever. How have you responded to God's word? Have you trusted in Jesus for salvation? Have you trusted in Jesus for forgiveness? Again, what's our purpose? We are made for fellowship with God. What, what ruined that? Our sin. Why can't we be with God? We're not holy. He is. Who is holy? Jesus. So if we want to be with God, we have to trust in who? Jesus. Have you trusted in Jesus? There's... <laughs> I briefly mentioned this on Sunday, John 14, 6, but I use this a lot, and I, I've used it with family, right? And, and it's that very exclusive claim that Jesus makes, I'm the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, except for me, only by me, right? And so, again, if you desire, I, I know all of us desire joy, right? Satisfaction, peace, but you'll never know that until you know who? Christ. Christ is the only way for us to be reconciled and brought back into fellowship with God. Um, it's important to ask this question. I promised you I'd ask it every week, and then we'll pray. But how does Psalm 15 point to Christ? I hope that's been clear. How does, who, who is, again, Psalm 2. <laughs> who did the Father put on the hill? Who, who alone can be in the Father's presence? Who is the King, the perfect King, who perfectly did verses 2 to 5? Jesus. And if we trust in Jesus, we too can be in God's presence, right? Psalm 15, like so much of God's word, is a diagnostic tool. It reveals our sin, it reveals our lostness, and it points us to our need for a solution, the Savior. Jesus is the one, the promised one of God, who lived the life we could not live because we are unholy, we're sinners, and died the death all of us deserve. And he did that to give sinners like us right standing with God so that we could dwell with God for how long? Forever. So in Christ, by trusting in him, we have a new representative. We have a new righteousness. It's a foreign righteousness. It's not anything that we've done. It's his righteousness given to us. Amen? A new relationship and new power for holy living. I put this in your notes, but you've got to fill in the blanks if you want it. <laughs> Christ... Again, the question, how does Psalm 15 point to Jesus in the gospel? Christ is the answer to verse 1. What's the question? Who can dwell with the Lord? Who's the answer? It's not a what, it's a who. Who's the answer to verse 1? Christ, right? So Christ is the answer to verse 1 and the fulfiller of verses 2 to 5. Who did verses 2 to 5 perfectly? Perfect behavior, perfect speech, perfect character. That's Christ. So Christ is the answer to verse 1. 
He is the fulfiller of verses 2 to 5, so that we can enjoy the promise of verse 5. And I should have put C, which is what? You'll never be moved. Well, let's pray. I hope you've looked to the solution. And here's the thing. How dare we? (laughs) How dare we, if we know the solution, aren't giving the solution to others? I don't understand that. I could do better. I'll be honest, forthright, self-effacing. You know, I, I try to share the gospel. I know a lot of us do. But if we really believe that the, the most fundamental question and really mankind's greatest need is to be with God, and only through Christ, by trusting in him and his life, death, and resurrection, can we be with God, why aren't we telling more people about him? Church, we have a job. It's a vocation. It's a privilege. And that is, if we know the solution, Jesus Christ, we're called to do what? To proclaim that solution to others. Well, here's the prayer, and you can pray with me. I included this in your handout. Again, I'm just trying to teach us how to prayerfully apply God's word. God speaks to us in his word, and we speak back in what? We call it, starts with putt, ends with rare prayer. All right, so verse 1, pray with me. Father, may our greatest desire be to abide in your presence. May we be able to say with the psalmist in Psalm 42.1, As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. We thank you that we have access into your presence both now and forever because of our faith in Jesus Christ and his saving work. We praise you that we are saved not by our works, but by your work. We thank you for your amazing grace. And then verses 2 to 5b, Father, help us by the power of the Holy Spirit to walk blamelessly, to do what's right, to speak truth, to bless others with our words, to avoid evil, to be faithful, to be generous and loving. Help us to reflect your character for your glory. Help us to remember that we are not saved by works, but for works. And then finally, verse 5c, Father, we thank you that you promised to hold us up. Christ alone is our sure foundation. He is our rock and refuge. We rest in your Son and long for the day when we will see him face to face. Give us, Father, the boldness to tell others about Jesus and his saving work so that they too can know you and be with you. And we ask these things in Jesus' matchless, holy, wonderful name. And all God's people said, amen, amen.